Code monkey, get up, get coffee. Code monkey, go to job. Code monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager up. Code monkey, think maybe manager wanna write goddamn luck and page himself. Code monkey, not clean out loud. Code monkey, not crazy, just proud. Code monkey, like Frito. Code monkey, like you. Code monkey like you. Hello and welcome to Building with Rust, a podcast where we chat with folks who work with and within the Rust programming language. I'm your host, Sean Chen, and on today's show, I'm joined by Leonora Tyndall, who is one of the co-authors of the second edition of the book Programming Rust. She and the book's publisher, O'Reilly, were kind enough to provide listeners of the show with a 40% off discount. You can find that link in the show notes. Thank you, Nora and O'Reilly, for supporting the show. With all that said and done, hi, Nora. Thanks so much for coming onto the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, coming off of some some weird ups and downs in terms of starting a new job, then immediately going on vacation, and then coming back. So it's been a very fascinating time. But um, yeah, all in all, I'm I'm really excited. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that in a little bit. I actually wanted to... Start off first, uh, just thanking you, first off, for uh, a very nice shout-out you gave uh, on Twitter for the show. Honestly, it was a much-needed validation on my part. Uh, I've taken a bit of a break from the show and honestly was uh, wondering if people even liked it, if it was helpful, and whether I should continue doing it. So that was super helpful. So thank you again for that. Absolutely. I mean, I think Rust, the Rust community has a dearth of podcasts and programming in general has, um, in my experience, kind of struggled with having really high quality podcasts. And I think um, this is the kind of venue talking about things that people are building, why they're building them, how they're building them, why they're choosing the technologies that they are choosing. um, That's really valuable in an audio format because you get to learn more about the personalities that are involved, you know, the hard technical stuff at least in my opinion, is better suited to the text or video format. But in terms of personalities and community, I think it's hard to beat audio. It's hard to beat audio. You hit the nail on the head for kind of what I'm going for. I always try to give a more holistic picture and really try to give folks a platform to kind of talk about things other than, you know, Rust. I mean, Rust is obviously cool, and we do talk about that, of course, but... People are very interesting as well. So anyways, thanks again so much. Um, (laughs) I wanted to just kind of say like, no, I did not actually invite you on the show because you did that shout out. I I actually sent you uh, an invite first, maybe like a few days before you actually did that on Twitter. So uh, it was definitely very uh, serendipitous. For whatever reason, you were listening to old episodes. (laughs) So it's really funny, actually, because I had had listened to that episode when it came out. Um, with Tim. And I went back and listened to it again, just because I was, you know, occasionally I do that. I like to have a um, an archive of some podcast episodes in case I'm on a plane or driving or whatever. And I happened to listen to it. And I think it was Tim, or maybe it was you mentioned Zulip as a community space for Rust. And I thought, oh, well, I haven't logged in to the Rust Zulip in like eight months. So I should do that. I logged in and I saw your message there. So it was very serendipitous. And honestly, I think that's one of the positives, right? It reminds people that these community spaces exist because as you talked about in that episode, it can be hard to keep track of, you know, Reddit, Twitter, two different discords, Zulip, and I mean, a few IRC holdouts. 
So it, it's good to have those reminders that that community spaces exist that maybe we don't frequent all the time. Here's a random question then. Are you going to go ahead and listen to your own episode once it's out? Are you okay with listening to your own voice on a recording? That's actually a super interesting question. So I used to do some work for Pact Press making video content for them. And because of the way Pact is set up, they provide a lot of material. They just have a huge amount of throughput. They're very, um, not sure what the, the most diplomatic way to put this is, but they just put out a huge amount of material. Some of it is incredible. And some of it is not incredible, including the stuff that I made because I was like a random college student who was, you know, making video content about programming. Um, so I would learn something in class one day, then sit down and write a lesson about it and record it and send it off to pack the next day. But in that process, I became very comfortable with listening to my own voice. But I realized that if I'm not actively editing, if I don't have control over that recording and I listen to it, the only thing I'm going to get out of that is, oh, I did something wrong. Oh, I said the wrong thing. So no, I'm probably not going to listen back to this episode. Sure, that's fair. I think that's actually a pretty good lead into the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is basically your history, uh, how you got into where you work now and you know what your work history has been and what you've done in the past. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another interesting one in terms of Rust for me, because Rust was never something I thought I would use in industry, right? I got into Rust in 2016, a little bit after 1.0, as just a hobby. I was in high school. I was taking community college courses um, because I was doing online high school. And so I spent a lot of time just sort of sitting around on campus, waiting for class to start, waiting for my ride home, whatever it happened to be, with a laptop. And what actually ended up happening was that I was interested in doing Advent of Code that year. And I figured, okay, it's Advent of Code. It's fun. It doesn't matter. No grades attached to this. Let me just pick up a new language. And so I picked up Rust. And I was super fascinated with it. And then I basically forgot about it. I did a few little side projects in it. It was really fun. And then I ended up getting in touch with the founder of San Diego Rust, Daniel Norman. Um, He's great. He at that time was working for a company called Good Tech and he ran and still does run this really wonderful um, Rust users group in San Diego. And it's of course remote now. So I still occasionally try to attend that. Um, And I recommend it to any San Diegans who are listening. It's it's a phenomenal space. And he actually hired me as an intern uh, at Good Tech. And I learned so much from him there, but he wasn't using Rust. At that time they were using, I guess I'm not sure if I can say, but they were not using Rust. And it was a really interesting environment, but again, that just sort of reinforced this idea that, oh, well, Rust is just this hobby thing. Like it's never, you know, maybe Mozilla will use it. Maybe it'll be in Firefox, but I would never get to use it in industry. And so I just kept it as a hobby throughout school. I did a little bit of work with it in my databases, capstone, things like that. And then I went to Rust Belt Rust, which was this fascinating conference. Um, It it went for, I think, three years. I only went for one year. And of course, it didn't happen during the pandemic because everything is messed up. But at Rust Belt Rust, I ran into one of the acquisitions editors for O'Reilly, Zan McQuaid, who's a lovely person. And she happened to be looking for someone to help update programming Rust. And we had a conversation. I had done this work for Packed Press in the past. So I had a little bit of experience with education. I had done one internship where I had gotten to use a little bit of Rust. And so the pieces all just fell into place that, you know, I was a college student. I had some time on my hands. It was something I was interested in. And she ended up asking me if I would be willing to help 
work on the second edition of that book. And that I have to say has been one of the best experiences of my career in term, you know, not that my career is so long, but in terms of learning and in terms of mentorship and in terms of getting to understand things from a different perspective, because having spent all my time, you know, in school, going to the other side of that and actually teaching people how to do something had was such a fascinating experience for me. Yeah, you kind of just dove right into the programming rest book. Really want to talk about that, especially because I uh, love the first edition. I honestly think I might have liked it more than the book. I think I probably like when I was first getting into rust, I think I preferred the style that the first edition was written in and how they explain things. So yeah, I read that book, gosh, multiple times. Like I remember the first pass was like, okay, you know, like some things are sticking obviously. And then there's a lot of things that aren't, um, especially lifetimes took me a long time. The first pass, anytime they would just talk about it. My eyes probably glazed over a little bit, probably read it then like a second and third pass. And every time would pick up some some new tidbits or things that I had read previously would click a bit more into place. And it's interesting as well that you mentioned kind of the education aspect of, of helping to write that. I've actually used some of the exercises from the first edition as well for uh, for teaching some folks Rust as well. I think uh, I definitely used the Mandelbrot renderer example. Uh, so that was always a good kind of visual project to get folks into something like that, especially the fact that I think they combined it with uh, scoped threads or something like that. So that was really cool. You you basically mentioned how you how that opportunity came up to work on the second edition, which I was very curious about. I was like, do you have some kind of in with with the the co authors? Like, what's the, what was the story there? But it's 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 interesting that. It, no, it, it sounds like it didn't actually arise that way. So that's that's kind of interesting. But yeah, like, can you talk a little bit more about what the process of writing the book was like with Jim Blandy and Jason Orendorf? So, I mean, it's interesting that you say you had an in because um, I didn't at all. The story I told, you know, meeting Zan and all that kind of stuff was was what happened. But after I had already started working on the project, I mentioned it to my aunt. Um, and she, it turned out, had gone to college with Jim Blandy. Oh, wow. <laughs> they hadn't spoken in years. I, but I mentioned, oh, I'm doing this book with this guy called Jim Blandy, um, who's kind of a big deal in software. And she said, oh, Jim Blandy, is it perhaps possible that he went to Oberlin? <laughs> and so it turns out that she actually knew him. So it was such a funny coincidence. But yeah, no, I mean, it was it was a really wonderful experience. And I will say, you know, the, the question you actually asked me, which I totally went off topic, was about my career. The, the reason that I immediately went to the book is because it's been my experience that mentorship is the most important thing, at least so far, in terms of getting opportunities and learning. And being able to work with Jim on that book is one of the best mentorship experiences that I've ever had. And I think in that sense, it changed my career a lot. As I mentioned, the educational aspect of things, being able to come in as someone who had a good understanding of the language and had a little bit of understanding of how to teach, but didn't have an understanding of how this particular book was teaching. I had read the first edition. I had gotten a lot out of it. But as you say, it's very different from the official book. And it's, it's even very different from a lot of the other books that are out there. And I think being able to think through what is my philosophy of teaching? How do I want 
my students, whether it's people in my class, people reading my book, whatever it is, even listeners maybe to a podcast, how do I want them to engage with this material? What learning paths am I trying to give to them? It's a level of high level emotional thinking that I think as engineers, we're not often taught. And so being able to come into a project like that with someone who had some experience with that, who had worked on this book in the past, and who was, you know, pretty senior in his career and was able to bring those personal and soft skills experiences to bear on something that is such a hard skills topic was, I think, really valuable for me, both in terms of writing the book and in terms of my career. And in terms of writing the book, you know, the process is one of maybe the most technically intensive that I've gone through in certain ways, because since it's a technical book, everything has to be technically correct, which means that we had to have a test suite. We had to make sure that our source code was exactly correct between the test suite and the book. We had to make sure that all these technical aspects were correct, very much hard skills, as well as, and of course, (laughs) make sure that the content was correct, um, as well as having some empathy for the reader who wasn't going to get to see the book for a year. So trying to have that kind of empathy for people who you aren't interacting with and who you're, you may never get to see their reactions to your work is a really difficult thing. And it's the kind of skill that I think you can only really gain through experience or through mentorship because, you know, we, we aren't taught that in college as engineers, those of us who get computer science degrees. When you go to a boot camp, they don't teach you okay, here's how to have empathy for the people in six months who are going to have to read your code. Yeah. And I resonate with a a lot with that, having spent a few years teaching at a boot camp myself. Part of my job was doing curriculum development, uh, writing code exercises and, and text and content that, you know, would basically serve as the quote unquote textbook. Obviously, I didn't write an actual textbook, but the text or content that students would be reading to as the introduction into C, for example, was definitely something that sticks out in my mind that I still remember working on. But yeah, having to, it it was definitely an exercise a lot in, in empathy, as you mentioned, because there was a lot of looking at what I'd written and putting myself in student shoes, kind of trying to glean what they knew and how they approach this topic and being like, okay, if they read this, you know, what kind of state of mind are they going to be in after reading this? And so what are then some good exercises then that would stretch that understanding a little bit and reinforce it? And yeah, you know, absolutely. That is such a reinforcing exercise for yourself as well, obviously having to, because I think you're thinking then about that particular topic from now multiple dimensions, right? Where, you know, when you're learning, you are just seeing the path that your instructor or your teacher laid out for you. Whereas as the instructor now, you need to kind of think through, there's it's, it's a it's many different routes. It's probably some kind of tree of possibilities that then you kind of need to mentally traverse and then kind of think through and, and figure out what is the one that you want to present to students? So, so absolutely, I, I resonate a lot with what you said about teaching. So I just wanted to say about that, one of the things that you mentioned that you had used was our Mandelbrot set example. And it's something that, of course, was present in the first edition. And we decided to keep it in the second edition, despite it being quite long. It's, it's a lengthy and not at all trivial project that's right at the beginning of the book. And we did consider 
changing it or removing it or moving it, but I think it has a concrete outcome. It's very clear what you're supposed to do. There's a lot of playing you can do with it, and we do suggest some of that, but the basic path is very clear. You write this program, you run it, and you get to see a cool picture, right? It, it, it appeals to some pretty basic sensibilities within most people. And it gives you that initial shot of dopamine when you, when you work through that example that says, oh, I can do this. I can understand this. This is something I can wrap my head around. And then being able to immediately parallelize it and see, oh, these are the superpowers that Rust gives me. This is what Rust can do for me as an engineer, as a hobbyist, whatever it is. I can make my programs faster. I can make them easier to understand. And it doesn't have to be scary. And so I think that's one of my favorite parts of the entire book is that one example and having it placed right at the beginning there. It really, it really draws people in in a positive way. Even if it doesn't, because you, know, you can't get a book to appeal to everybody. And even if it doesn't, I know I'm pretty sure I skipped over it the first time. I think it probably mentioned scope threads or the the how you the whole process of parallelizing the renderer, and I was like, okay, that seems too advanced right now. I'm going to go skip to strings or something. But right, it gives you something to come back to, something that you can say, oh, I've gathered a little more context. Here's a concrete thing that I can do, and I can see it work. Absolutely, because you give a bit of a pitch then for the second edition. You know, like if. If you're, if you're someone who read through the first edition, you know, multiple times, what would you say is the delta between the first and second edition? That's actually a super interesting question. So I think there have been a lot of people that I've talked to who said, oh, I love the first edition. I'm buying the second edition. And that was always something that was super interesting to me because I didn't expect that, right? I basically expected, okay, the second edition is going to be an updated edition for the same demographic. It's going to be for people who are already systems programmers or are already pretty experienced with whatever programming language, and they're coming to Rust for the first time, right? This is the in for people who maybe have read some of the book, maybe bounced off the book, maybe had just heard about Rust. But as it turns out, there are a number of people who are pretty vocal about loving the updates that we did to the second edition. And I think part of that is async, right? Async is a huge change. It's really hard to get your mind around. Frankly, I didn't fully understand it until we had gone through the process of writing that chapter. That was primarily Jim's work. He did a huge amount of work on making the diagrams both accurate and accessible. And that's one of the things that I think is probably best about this book. Um, All the diagrams have been revamped. And Jim put in a huge amount of work in specifically the async chapter into making sure that the diagrams were set up in such a way that as long as you understood the sort of basics of systems programming, which you can get by reading, you know, the initial part of the book, you could understand what is async, what is a future, what is PIN, why do we care about PIN, why do you usually not have to care about PIN, and move on from there with an understanding of async that allows you to actually make progress in writing actual software that uses it. And I think that's something that felt less important at the time than it does now, to me at least. But I think in some ways, async is the biggest thing that Rust has done. Obviously, the borrow checker, you know, the like basic fundamentals of Rust are very important and they're what makes the language what it is. But async is a huge change. And I think it has enabled Rust to be used in a lot of areas where other languages like Go, for example, or even Python might have previously been the most attractive candidates 
Rust Async allows you to get the guarantees and the things that we all, you know, everybody listening to this podcast presumably loves about Rust, the expressiveness, the speed in places where you might have otherwise wanted to use something else previously. And I think as the ecosystem matures, that just becomes more true. Definitely. So it kind of just sounds like the main selling point for the second edition is the async material, like was a lot changed with actually when I, when I think of the first edition and one diagram sticks out in my head, which is when uh, they're talking about how ownership and how it forms a, a, a basically this clean tree kind of, uh, and, and there's this picture of the ownership structure. And then there's the, the, um, the contrasting one, which you would get in the garbage collected language of, of what I think was called in the book, a sea of, um, sea of objects. I don't recall that exact example. Yeah, I can look at the PDF. But I think one of my favorite things about the book in general is Jim's sense of humor. Mm. Um, and I, I definitely tried to carry that forward in the examples I wrote as well. It's just a little bit whimsical, you know, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of systems programming textbooks are really serious. They're really like, okay, you're an engineer and you're going to build software and it's going to be great and it's going to be robust and solid and maintainable and all these things. But I, I think it gets to be fun. You know, I think when you're learning something new, I think that gets to be a fun experience. And I think that we manage to carry that throughout the book in a way that really makes it feel accessible um, and, and <laughs> means that there's something to laugh about. You know, you don't feel like you're sitting down in a calculus class trying to figure out for the first time what on earth is a derivative. You're looking at this example and it's like lines from the Lord of the Rings or, you know, Alice in Wonderland quotes or whatever little whimsical example we decided to come up with. And I think that's really a positive for people who maybe otherwise would be turned off by that kind of really heavy, dry material. But one thing that's interesting that that you said was you asked about what makes the second edition attractive to people who had already read the first edition. And I think the, the reason I gave async as the example there is it's the biggest chunk of content, right? That's stuff that, you know, nobody had ever seen it in the first edition because it didn't exist. Those are features that simply weren't there. And there are a lot of other features like that. You know, we talk about unions, we talk about some new unsafe stuff. We talk about various newly stabilized functions, things like that. So you know, if you use the book as a reference, obviously going from the first edition to the second edition, it will be more up to date for you. But I think to be honest, a lot of people who read the book in its first edition are now going to be much more experienced engineers, Mm. right? And maybe the second edition will be useful to them in ways that the first edition wasn't primarily because they have grown as engineers. And so they'll be able to engage with those existing examples and our new examples in new ways that they wouldn't have been able to in the past. Part of that is we revamped a lot of the examples. Of course, everything's updated now to the 2021 edition. But a lot of that is also that we added more examples and refined the existing ones. So I think I would say if you're interested in async, our async content, I really like it. I think um, we did an amazing job on that. And as I said, that was largely Jim's work. But in addition to that, if you read the first edition and you thought that it was good if you if it meshed with your learning style because we didn't change that our philosophy is the same if it meshed with your learning style and you've grown as an engineer maybe take a look at the second edition and see if you can engage with it in a slightly different way because i think as with all learning material especially on a concept this complicated a topic that has so many moving parts coming back to something familiar 
can be really positive for learning and growth. Yeah, I think you really actually hit the nail on the head when you described the book as whimsical. I think that actually was very much the linchpin of why I always opted to go back to programming Rust versus the book. I mean, granted, I have read the book multiple times as well, but I think, again, programming Rust is probably still my personal favorite uh, Rust book. That's And yeah, so I think it is definitely that. That's incredibly flattering to hear. I think I hear a lot of praise from people in the community, not to like toot my horn, but just people send me messages on Reddit occasionally, right? And it makes me really happy because I think programming as a discipline is something that can be so much more fun than it often is. And one of the people that I almost always cite regarding this is Julia Evans. She makes these amazing zines that are like, you know, 12 to 16 pages on a particular technology with these adorable illustrations that get the point across very succinctly. And they also let you have fun while you do it. You know, you're reading this short material with enjoyable illustrations and a nice art style that puts people very at ease, or at least it puts me very at ease. And at the same time, you're diving deep into incredibly technical topics like how do you implement DNS? How exactly does NTP work? You know, all these very technical topics that are made approachable because she's having fun with it. And I think that kind of fun and whimsy is something that if you add a technical topic and a good time, what you get is hacking. I mean, that's like the essence of the original term hacking, right? Is having fun with technology, trying to understand what computers are doing and get them to do more interesting things trying to get them to do what we want because it's fun. And I, 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 that's what got me into technology. That's why I'm still here. You know, I, yes, the industry is great. We do great things. I'm grateful to have worked at companies that have improved the world, but there are a lot of ways to improve the world. And this is, I think, the most fun one, at least for me. Another person whose whimsical take on programming that I really love is um, Lynn Clark. I really loved Lynn Clark's um, cartoons comics, I guess, for lack of a better term. But yeah, the way she has explained a lot of really complicated topics, I think for probably the Mozilla's old blog, were some that I really, really loved. So so let's talk a little bit now then about this job transition you're kind of going through. Like, where were you for the last period of your career? And where are you going next? Yeah, so I was lucky to have an internship actually in 2018 where I got to use a little bit of Rust. And that was at this company called Cancer IQ. They do some really interesting work in the precision health space. Essentially, they build a platform that allows uh, clinicians at breast imaging clinics, at genetics clinics, and even now at hospitals to automate the process of determining whether people need to be tested for genes that might make them more susceptible to certain hereditary cancers. And it's a fascinating problem. And it's one that honestly consumes like a lot of doctors time in a way that is not very efficient. And so that's something, there are many sort of externalities to it. It's very complicated as ours, everything we work on in this industry. But the core of it is looking at graphs and making decisions based on them. Classic computer science stuff, right? So I was lucky to work with this um, amazing engineer, Ethan Kent, who had decided and convinced the business that he wanted to build the core of their decision-making in Rust. You know, this was 2018. This was early days for Rust in industry. 
And graph problems are not what Rust is known for being phenomenal at. But he had actually built an implementation of some of these clinical guidelines in Rust, including a JSON API and a lot of very interesting family graph handling logic. And it was so fast. You know, this was in comparison to a traditional Ruby monolith and some very interesting microservices and things like that. And the main thing that stood out to me as an intern was in comparison to everything else, Rust was just on another level in this application space. So it really wasn't a systems programming task. It was really an applications programming task. And so once I graduated from college, I went back to Cancer IQ and I had the opportunity to work there for almost a year, working primarily on this exact problem of using Rust to model cancer risk and model these academic guidelines for family history analysis. And getting to use Rust in the application level space, I think, really strengthened my belief that Rust is not just a good system language, but a good language because of how fast I was able to move. You know, it's so expressive and the compiler is there to catch so many problems that I was able to do huge refactorings very quickly, build lots of functionality that I think had I been building it in a language with fewer guarantees, none of which were the borrow checker, right? None of this is about memory management. But had I been building it in a language with fewer guarantees around the type system, would have just been too difficult and I would have had to build them in less optimal ways. And I think that and Rust's ability to reuse code that has been written by others without fear is really powerful because I could just take these exotic data structures. You know, we had a situation where we had to build really, really fast autocomplete. And I was able to find someone who had already written a Rust library with a data structure that was optimized for exactly what we needed. I was able to take a quick look at the code, make sure it made sense to me, pull it into the project and spin up the service in like 20 minutes. And the latency was you know, not noticeable at all to the end user. And it was really an amazing experience for me. And so working on that application level of the stack with Rust, I think really changed my perspective on what Rust can be and what people can use it for. So that's that's where I've been up until the beginning of this year. I'm a little bit curious when you say working with Rust for an application, would you say that affects the workflow in any way? Do you use slightly different tools than maybe, you know, what most people talk about? I mean, obviously I'm sure you're still using cargo and 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 pulling a bunch of third-party libraries and such, but like I guess because of the output is slightly different of what you're working on? Again, like how does that, does that affect your workflow at all? Sure. I mean, because it's a JSON API server, we used, you know, a lot of the sort of basic web development tools, a lot of curling to different endpoints, sending JSON around, things like that. Um, I got, I got pretty good at JQ. That was, that was a skill I did not have before going into that job. But I think fundamentally, part of the power of Rust is that a lot of the tools that you would use for some of these really thorny systems tasks are just as powerful when working on the application level. There's been a lot of work in Visual Studio Code getting debugger support to be really high level for Rust and really high quality. And of course, Rust Analyzer is amazing. And so putting those two things together means that writing code is quick. I'm much less likely to make mistakes when writing code. Of course, the compiler catches them when I do most of the time. Um, and when I have a bug that I need to fix, I'm able to just jump into this very high quality LLDB session, 
step through my code, see exactly what's going on. Most of the types are translated pretty well. There are, there are a few rough edges here and there, but using exactly the same tools as I would otherwise use for a systems programming task, I can analyze the behavior of the application in a very fine-grained manner that honestly is not available in a lot of application programming languages. The contrast that I would make is to something like Ruby, where of course there is first-class debugging support because you can just jump into a REPL at any line of code. And yet I found myself, and maybe this is just because I'm much more familiar with Rust, but I did find myself wishing for some of those debugger features that I had through LLDB and through VS Code in these Ruby projects that one would sort of imagine, and certainly I had assumed would have much higher quality tooling support. That was partially because of versions and things were old and things like that. I'm sure Ruby, if you're on like very cutting edge Ruby, things are really nice nowadays. But it, it threw me off guard a little bit to see that, oh, this systems programming language that's so low level can actually have tooling that rivals this thing that was specifically built, you know, Ruby on Rails was specifically built for developer convenience. And yet in Rust, we're at least approaching the level of, of the same level of tooling. That's really interesting. And so now you are moving on in your career. You want to talk a little bit about where you're going and what you'll be doing. I mean, I've already basically alluded to it, but yeah. Yeah. So I got very lucky to have the opportunity to work on the edge delivery team at Fastly. And that's where I just started um, just at the end of 2021. And edge delivery basically means taking bytes and giving them to users. We have some bytes. We would like them to go to the users very rapidly and to the correct users and not the wrong users. Um, if, if I were to put the, the problem very succinctly. And it's a really fascinating space to work in because it is the exact opposite of the previous position that I had. It's not an application level thing. It is very much a system level thing. Our problems are not about, well, I won't say they're not about correctness. Correctness is very important. And that is, I think, one reason that we're using Rust. But it's not about giving doctors an answer about what to do with their patients. It's about getting bites from here to there. There has to be the correct there. So that's obviously critical, but you know, it's a whole different skill set in some ways. And that's something that I definitely can't talk about a huge amount here, partially because I haven't really gotten into it yet. You know, as I said, I only started at the end of 2021. It's only been a few weeks. But I will say that I have written probably 200% more benchmarks in these couple of weeks than I ever wrote at my previous position, because it turns out that when you're doing things like this, speed matters. And so that's the class of problem that I'm now finding myself embroiled in is how do we make every aspect of this pipeline not only correct, but also take advantage of every little corner, nook and cranny of the hardware that we have available to us. And that is something that Rust is perfectly designed for, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's what it does. And then I'm curious with this job transition. So I assumed, and you haven't corrected me otherwise, that you're still in Chicago. That's right. I am. Oh, uh, so we're both located in Chicago. Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> that's embarrassing. Hi. I'm, that's cool that you're in Chicago. I was looking back at this now when I scrolled back through our Zoom of history. In October 2020, we had just moved here literally a month ago to Chicago. And so I was just like looking around 
to see if there were any Rust developers that I could talk to. And your name cropped up somehow, and that's why I, I hit you up in the first place. I thought that had been communicated, but apparently not. No, you did say that. It just totally slipped my mind. I don't know. For some reason, I assumed you were um, one of those like, you know, cool Seattle people. <laughs> but you're, I guess, you're a Midwesterner, just like me now. <laughs> you mentioned you, you grew up in San Diego. I grew up in Northern California, uh, so we're both California transplants to the Midwest. There's been a lot of that. It's so funny because every place that I've worked so far has had one person from North Carolina, which is where I was born, and at least one person from California. So, Did you move to Chicago for Cancer IQ or were you already here? I was curious about that. So that's actually another piece of serendipity. I went to school in Beloit, Wisconsin. I went to Beloit College, which is a tiny little liberal arts college. And it has, I think... 1600 undergrads, no graduate program. The computer science department there, I think now has three professors. At the time I went, it had two. And it was really, really fascinating. I think that the learning opportunities that I had there were pretty unique because I got to work with these computer science professors, you know, almost one-on-one at times, which is not an experience I think that everyone gets. So I feel really grateful for that. But I did not love small town Wisconsin life. That was not my favorite thing in the world. So I spent a lot of time in Chicago and the Chicagoland area. And that was how I found Cancer IQ. And so I actually lived here over the summer in 2018. And I basically fell in love with it during that period. Okay. And so I decided that, yeah, when I graduated, I would come back down here and see if I could work here. And one of the beautiful things about Fastly is that they're a fully remote company. So while they don't have an office here, I didn't have to move. So I still get to stay here which I'm, I'm really glad about. We need to uh, go out for drinks or something when Omicron is not a thing anymore. Definitely. We totally should. Or whatever it is you, you, you hang out, you do with friends here in the city. My last team introduced me to shuffleboard as an activity that people could do together, which I had never thought of. What is, and I sort of associate with, it's like a game where you put these like round pucks on a waxed surface and push them with like big long sticks and try to get them to Is that curling? No, it's it's like the it's like the version of curling for people who aren't athletic. Because <laughs> curling, those the pucks are like really heavy, but in shuffleboard, they're just made out of wood. Okay. And so you can just like push them a little bit and they'll go. But it is basically like curling, yeah. It's it's actually super fun. I mean, I didn't think it would be fun at all, but it, it was a really good time. So maybe we should do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Also, for all of all the people out there who need a team building activity, that's it. Take your team shuffleboarding. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, we've talked a, a little bit about education, and you mentioned getting to work with professors one-on-one in college, which I agree is, yeah, is probably not a um, typical experience for most college students. And it just made me think that, so I didn't get, I, I got into programming after college. I did not study it in college. And it just, it really got me thinking, like, you know, I think if I probably had majored it in college, I probably would have grown to hate it way more than than I do. I mean, I, I don't hate it, obviously. Or maybe not, obviously. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> and so, you know, I think it has been very special to basically get to have learned programming on my own terms and really just figure out, you know, what works for me and just run with it. It's actually really funny because I, I actually started a master's program through Georgia Tech. They have this online master's in computer science. And I took all the classes I was interested in there 
And that wasn't enough for the degree. And there were still a couple of classes left that I still had to complete for the degree. And I was just like, I didn't really do it for the degree. I really just wanted to, because again, I didn't study programming in college. I wanted some kind of formal training. And I basically got the amount that I wanted in the subjects that I wanted, which was I went and did the, they had a systems concentration. So taking operating systems and um, high performance computing was another one of my favorite classes. So I t again, I took everything that I was interested in and then noped out of there because now it was just like, well, I need to fulfill electives and I just can't bring myself to, because, you know, it, it really was, there were multiple times during that program where I was like, I'm writing a bunch of C code and I wish I wasn't. I wish I could do this in Rust. Wasn't an option. At least I was still interested in the subject matter. So that really helped to you know, keep me on track. But then it got to the point where I had to just take some classes I was really whatever about in languages that I didn't care for. And at that point, that kind of just was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just, I just stopped going. <laughs> because really, also, there was like, it was, it was, I couldn't stomach having to go to classes and do busy work and try to get a grade that I didn't really care about. But also, on top of that, there was also the opportunity cost, right? Like I, would have to dedicate my time to study to not be studying Rust, to not be studying topics that I I found interesting, but had to pull myself away from just to to get the degree that I didn't really care about. So you know, I think that experience again kind of speaks to well how school kind of kills a lot of you know your 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 interest in things, uh, which is really sad and sucks. And I wish education was better, but it is it is the way of things i suppose and i don't i don't know <laughs> makes me sad yeah no it's too bad i think computer science education specifically is in a really interesting spot because if you think about computer science as a discipline in some ways it's really not one discipline right it's really hard to talk about what is computer science well academically it's math right essentially right it is it is very mathematical and most of the research that is done, especially at large institutions, is very theoretical in nature. And of course, that's like super important, right? You know, we need to, for example, come up with good post-quantum cryptography schemes so that our internet-based way of life continues to move forward. But I think that a lot of what students are learning when they take a computer science course is much more practical than the field was really originally sort of conceived to produce. As an example, there are a lot of universities that actually have different tracks for computer science. And this is what the ACM actually recommends is having computer science, software engineering, and computer engineering, right? Where computer science is the theoretical mathematical aspect. Computer engineering is the physical aspect, right? How do you build a processor? How do you design? hardware that does these things? How do you design large-scale systems that take advantage of that hardware? And then software engineering is building software for those systems in a way that is useful, you know, whether it's useful in industry or useful academically, but not so much in the theoretical aspect. And I think that in some ways, that is a shift in culture that needs to happen, right? I think it's, it's hard to say this, because I personally love 
the, as I mentioned, the sort of hacker ethos of like, okay, here's this computer. I'm just going to jump into it and see what I can make it do. Right. I think that's beautiful. I think people have built some really amazing things that way. One of the things that I really love is retro computing and especially the kind of music that people were able to eke out of these very old, very limited machines. Things like trackers, things like the early demo scene stuff. And of course, the modern demo scene is amazing. But the like really early demo scene, super small programs that could generate things that had genuine artistic value, right? Out of these tiny, tiny little programs. Or um, there's a whole topic called Byte Beats, which is, I'll have to look up. Maybe you can put in the show notes. I'll send it to you. Um, There's a page of them that basically it's like extremely short snippets of C code that just move bits around. You pipe them into the Linux audio stack as raw bytes and the output is music. And it's like two lines of C code. And so that kind of thing I find really beautiful, right? But at the same time, I think that there is a place for formal research in software engineering in a way that we haven't seen it. You know, of course there have been people who have tried to research what is the optimal number of engineers to put on a team? How do we do, you know, Kanban or Scrum or whatever so that we can eke every last little bit of performance out of these engineers? That's not what I mean. What I mean is that I think we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And one of the reasons that I love Rust is that it prevents us from making some of those mistakes. But some of those mistakes are people mistakes. They're mistakes about not how we're building things, but what we're building. And I think that that's something that is a conversation we need to have as a discipline, right? Obviously, not every person who writes computer programs went to college. None of us have an engineer's certificate, certainly not in the U.S. We call ourselves engineers, and of course, this is a tired old debate, but we call ourselves engineers, but we do not have the same rigor in a lot of ways that other engineering disciplines do. My uncle is a civil engineer, and frankly, when I tell him some of the things that I do at my job, he gets a little frustrated that I call myself an engineer because he you know, builds bridges in New York City. And if he treated those things the way that we treat software, he would not have a job. So, I think that the field is huge in a way that I think people don't understand. It is conceptually huge. And as a field, I think we need to have a conversation about what does it really mean to do software engineering? What does it mean to build things, not just things that businesses want, but build things that are positive for the world, that are infrastructurally sound, things that can last a long time and things that will bring a lot of value to a lot of people without, you know, immediately being co-opted to suck away people's attention and get data from people and things of that nature. And I think in some ways, Rust gives us the opportunity to do that, right? Because it blends a lot of these academic ideas that maybe previously weren't accessible to the average software engineer into a language that is very useful to a lot of people. And so you don't have to go out of your way and say, hey, boss, can I use this language nobody's ever heard of? That's very slow, but it's very correct. And so if we build our software in this, in 50 years, it'll still work. Because your boss doesn't care if your software still works in 50 years. You know, he cares if you can ship it in the next quarter. She wants you to, you know, get that next feature out so that this deal will go through. But if you can incidentally build software that will work for 50 years, I think at that point, we're winning. I think at that point, we've made a process that can begin to change the industry for the better. 
I know that's a little long and rambly, but th- this has been in my mind a lot because I've been looking at so much older code, shall we say, mm. um, in, in my free time. And it's just, there, there's some janky stuff out there that people rely on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But in terms of bringing it back to education, I just want to say like super quickly, bring it back to the thing that you actually asked me about. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, we are as a field in a really good position in terms of education because you do not have to get a college degree to work in our field. And I think that brings in a lot of really positive ideas and concepts into our field. Um, and while I'm grateful that I have a degree in computer science, I think if I knew what I know now about the industry, when I started getting my, my degree, I think I would have gotten my degree in something else. Because I think that computer science and especially the software engineering component of what we call computer science is accessible enough that if you want to learn it on your own, you can. And there are disciplines out there like sociology, like history, that are just not that accessible. And if you want to learn those things, you got to sit down in a classroom. (laughs) Yep, definitely. Cool. With that all being said, I always like like to wrap things up with a more whimsical question. Uh, so the one that I came up with for today is what fictional world would be on the top of your list to visit? This is a really interesting question because there are sort of two, I really love sci-fi and there's sort of two series that I've really been getting into. The first one is the Locked Tomb uh, series by Tamsin Muir. Um, they're really fun. They're, well, the cover of the uh the first book I think describes it best. Necromancers explore a haunted Gothic palace in space. It's great. <laughs> it's just fun. But I don't know if I would want to visit there because there's a lot of like reanimated skeletons and kind of terrifying ghost stuff. And like, I, you know, I'm not cut out for that. I am but a humble programmer. Yeah, you like to keep your horror at a distance. Exactly. So I think in terms of what I'd like to visit, there's this very prolific sci-fi author called C.J. Cherry. And she's written a ton of novels in what she calls the Alliance Union universe. And it's basically Star Wars before there was Star Wars in a lot of ways, I like to think of it as. It's an epic space opera, um, has like sci-fi, you know, faster than light travel elements, um, does a lot of discussion. She she does a lot of discussion about um, really cool philosophical things And, you know, for the same reason that a lot of people love Dune, because it goes really deep into politics and philosophy. I love CJ Cherry for that. And also her spaceships just look so different from any other sci-fi author that I've ever read, the way she describes them. They're very practical based on the, like, physics of her universe, but they just are so strange and different. And I would love to step into her imagination and be able to see, you know, how she actually thinks about them. What did you mean by Star Wars before Star Wars? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's... For me, the thing that's cool about Star Wars, because I used to be a huge Star Wars fan. I used to be, like, the most embarrassingly invested Star Wars nerd. I had read, like, hundreds, probably not hundreds, probably a hundred Star Wars novels in high school <laughs> before Disney came and decided and that Disney all of that bought, wasn't yep. canon anymore. <laughs> But, you know, there's so much there that you can tell almost any story in that world. And you can tell it in a way that makes it accessible to, you know, random middle school kids 
because it has this element of fantasy and this element of escapism. And it really feels like it's a little bit more relatable than maybe reading, you know, a heady political thriller about the Cold War. But that doesn't mean you can't write about, you know, those kind of anxieties. And I think that CJ Cherry managed to do that very well. You know, she built this universe that is interesting and fun and fascinating to learn about. And then she talked about really hard topics in it and did that in a way that was accessible to people and that they could think about difficult questions without associating them to their life in a way that sort of makes people defensive and makes people want to pick sides and things like that. And I think that's really admirable. And of course, there are a million authors who do that really well. It's just that she's on my mind because I happen to be reading her novels right now. Yeah, when you mentioned that, that actually uh, brought to mind a sci-fi series that I read a little bit ago it's called the Wayfarer series. Ooh, I've not heard of that. By Becky Chambers. Also kind of sci-fi but actually what i loved about it was i'm pretty sure she dreams of different alien cultures um so she has like lizard people and lobster people but like she really clearly she really thinks through if these were an actual alien race what would their society be like what would their culture be like and then she like creates those characters you know actually of those cultures and it all makes a lot of sense and i think it's so it's so fascinating from a characterization standpoint, just how she's able to to do that so realistically and convincingly. It just makes for some really, really interesting characters and a lot of really interesting relationships between characters. And it kind of just like happens to be in sci-fi just so she could kind of like play around with a bunch of different alien species. But like, I think this, other than that, the sci-fi element is kind of more in the background. That was just kind of what I thought of. That's so cool. Well, you know, I mean, you said there's a lobster species, but of course we have to ask the question, is there a crab species? I don't know. I have not read all of her books. So, you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe there is. I'm going to send her an email and tell her to uh, put in a crab species called the (laughs) Rustations. And they're all programmers. They're all, and they all think about, they're all all think about correctness and the code that they write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. That would be funny. And they all have 18 different chat clients. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm not sure I can milk any more out of this bit. (laughs) Oh man. Um, Cool. We're coming, we're coming out around time. Um, Thank you so much, Nora. Okay. This was, this was super fun. Absolutely. Uh, It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this podcast and um, I'm excited to see where the community goes from here. Even though you're not going to listen to this episode. I'm not going to listen to this one. No, that's correct. I'm excited to listen to you talk to other people. I'm excited to uh, not listen to this one because I am not editing it, for which I am also grateful. I was going to say, are you offering? (laughs) Nope. Listen, I have a rate for that. (laughs) No, it's okay. Cool. All right. Thanks again so much, Nora. And so before we go ahead and wrap this up, I just wanted to give you a chance to plug all your social medias and blogs and Twitter and whatever it is you want to go ahead and plug. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I should plug is the book. I think it's great. We spend a lot of time on it. And for anyone who's in that demographic of system programmers who want to get into Rust, people who looked at the book already and liked it, but want to revisit it, or if you're just interested, um, I encourage you to check it out. In terms of me personally, 
I've got a Twitter at Nora.codes. That's Nora, D-O-T, codes. And my blog is Nora.codes, like a domain name. Um, pretty much everywhere on the internet, I'm either Nora Codes or Nora.codes. So feel free to look me up. If you find me on some weird, obscure social media, then props to you. But Twitter's pretty much it. <laughs> Thanks again so much, Nora. Uh, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. And uh, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to meet up since we're local and do something fun. Definitely. Oh, yeah. That concludes today's show. The music you heard at the beginning was performed by Andre Logic Bogus and was written by Jonathan Colton. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. You can reach us either via email at buildingwithrust at gmail.com or in the Rustation Station Discord server, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Building with Rust. We'll see you in the next one.